Hello, and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to have another very interesting show. We're uh, veering a bit away from COVID-19, which has been our focus for the past month or so, but it will also be including that because anything we do right now in our society does connect in some way or another to that issue that we are all facing both nationally and uh, actually globally. Today, however, we're going to be focusing specifically on the subject of housing and other social, economic, and political environmental issues that face especially New York City and what faces us faces everywhere else. In fact, we are a microcosm in many ways. And to discuss this is a congressional candidate for New York, Pete Harrison. Pete Harrison is a uh, gentleman who is running for Congress in the 12th district of New York City. He has a background in urban planning where he studied uh, tenant organizing and community land trusts. We'll unpack that a bit today as well. Pete is running for office, as I mentioned, and is looking to advocate for those people who, well, really, almost everybody, people in New York who really need help with their housing, they need a fair, equitable housing, affordable housing, as it's so often called, but so rarely is. And uh, this is one of his specialties. And so, very glad to have Pete on to discuss the ins and outs of this uh, issue, what he's doing about it, and what he would represent for New Yorkers if elected to Congress. So, Pete Harrison, welcome to A Better World. A pleasure to have you. Hey, Mitchell, thanks so much. Happy to uh, be on. So glad, so glad. So uh, I had the pleasure of meeting you out here on Avenue A and 14th Street, right near where <laughs> both you and I live, and where you have been doing a fair amount of organizing. Tell us about, first of all, what is your main uh, intent and incentive for running for Congress? I mean, that's a real hotbed of activity, as you well know, and um what uh, what's driving you? Yeah, I think uh, the uh, place to start is where we both live and why we're neighbors in Stuyvesant Town. Uh, and you know, as you mentioned, I've been here organizing with the Tenants Association for a while. I, I moved in about 11 years ago, and uh, I got involved, I think, as a lot of folks do with the housing movement, and it's just a, a personal experience and a kind of um, – personal insecurity for housing. And when I moved in back in 2009, Stuyvesant Town had recently gone through a big uh, cell. MetLife had built it in the 40s. This is stuff I'm sure you all know, Mitchell, but... um, Yes, that's okay. You know, uh, Tishman Spire had bought it kind of at the height of the market just before the Great Recession. And uh, the market tanked and everything kind of went belly up for for Tishman and Stuytown. And we... uh, I was just a you know, humble uh, neighborhood bartender with some other friends, and we got a great deal um, in an apartment in, in Stuytown, and we moved in as market mm-hmm. rate tenants. And AOC was a local of- bartender as well, so you know you might have a <laughs> – that might actually become a prerequisite for Congress. <laughs> I know. I You know, people hear that uh, sort of say, oh, it's 
good, cool because AOC did it. I said, hey, look, I was I was bartending when AOC was still in high school, so I've been doing this for a while. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you've got yeah, one up you know, on her. <laughs> yeah, that's probably the only thing I can say. I've got a one up on her. She's, uh, <laughs> yeah. she's a deal. She's a dynamo. Uh, she is a dynamo. Yeah. Yeah, but my my experience, we had moved in as market rate tenants, as I mentioned, and about ten mm-hmm. months into our first year there, we got a letter. Uh, from the management saying you are part of a class action lawsuit. Your apartment is now rent stabilized and virtually overnight our rent went down by $1,100. We got $3,300 back in an escrow account and we got this new fancy rent stabilized lease with all these protections and um, I had no idea. Yeah, Yeah, I mean it was shocking. It's, you know, you kind of feel like you hit the lottery and I had no idea about rent regulations or rent protections yeah. at that point. And honestly, my like Irish Catholic guilt kicked in because I never, I just been <laughs> moved, moved in there 10 months ago. You know, we've got people in this yeah. complex that have been here since the forties. Like what and did all I do? All of a sudden you won the lottery. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, right at that moment, I, I sort of got involved with the tenants association to sort of understand how the heck uh, this happened to us and to sort of make the most of it. And there was a lot of organizing happening in the complex as the uh, Tishman Spire was going through bankruptcy and foreclosure and uh, trying to figure out who was going to come in next to take over the property and to make sure that they didn't sort of, you know, pull over and push over the tenants as they had. Uh, so I really got a crash course in organizing 101, became a building captain and knocked on lots of doors and, you know, getting people to meetings and organizing buildings and um, was really pretty inspired by the experience. And then the other shoe dropped maybe, sort of forget now, maybe six months later, but I got a knock on the door on a Sunday night and I got a manila envelope from a messenger and it was an eviction notice. And this was very much quite a turn of uh, events, quite the turn of events and uh, opened it up and it said, yo, a ton of money, which didn't sound exactly right. And it said you had to be out pay or be out in 30 days, which kind of didn't sound right. Uh, We had a court date and uh, you know, I was, pretty scared. And uh, even though I'd started doing some organizing with the tenants association, had a better sense of processes and laws, I, I kind of knew this seemed like a little fishy, but, you know, to get a letter saying you're going to lose your home uh, is, is frightening. And, and also I felt a certain amount of guilt and shame. And that's just a human experience. You feel like you've done something wrong, even though, you know, you really haven't. So kind of yeah. a long story short there, I had to go to housing court a bunch of times and fight to, what was clearly tenant harassment and I got my roommates together, their bank accounts and bank statements and went down there and, and showed that this was not the case. Um, and I, so I you were not in arrears. I was not, no. And, and, you know, there were a number of weird things that happened. They, uh, had not cashed, uh, some checks for a roommate that had done some cash, uh, some money orders. Um, actually oddly enough, there was a tenant in my building with a very similar name, um, but not exactly the same name, and they were cashing my checks into that apartment and not recognizing that on our, our ledger. Oh my. Uh, but, yeah. you know, something triggered this, and they were just trying to get folks out, particularly part of this class action lawsuit. So what's it to them? You know, they're paying fancy lawyers. They've got actuaries and spreadsheets doing all this stuff, and somebody's late on a rent or whatever, just trigger yeah. an eviction notice, and maybe that you get that person out. So um, I was very lucky that you know, both I had some experience now with the Tenants Association. My dad was a lawyer, and I could sort of bounce ideas back and forth on him so I could go down and represent ourselves because 
you know, you don't have a lawyer in housing court. And honestly, the third thing, going back to being a bartender, is I just, I had the time during the day, you know, I didn't have to miss work. I bartended at night so I could go down and spend three hours waiting for my court appearance. Um, all of those mm-hmm. things conspired to, you know, let me stay in the apartment and, um, you know, fight this, this eviction notice. But going down to housing court is very radicalizing. And I saw a bunch of people that could not fight back that didn't even show up, and that radicalized me and very much changed the direction of my life. And that's kind of what inspired me to go get my master's at Columbia in urban planning and get involved in um, sort of more citywide organizing. Um, and that really did set me off on this sort of very, um, I guess, arguably meandering path over the years uh, mm-hmm. to, uh, today where I'm you know, running for federal office as a housing advocate. Yes. Wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing that really interesting story and a story that uh, speaks for many, many people who actually haven't even been as fortunate as you to win that lottery and all of that and actually have the money even to pay the rent, even though there were some errors made with uh, depositing on behalf of someone else, etc. But the storyline really does resemble so many in so many areas, as you so well know, now that you are in the deep weeds of it. So running for uh, national office, as you said, Pete, is is sort of a whole other class of activity, if you will. I don't mean economic <laughs> class necessarily, but of, uh, of political action, I would just say. And um, so I'm sure that your, I imagine that your platform is um, a bit broader than this. I mean, the point being also that AOC has made clear in the Green New Deal and before that, and as have many people running for office, is that even if it looks like they are a one uh, subject, one issue candidate, since one issue is always connected to all the other issues, you know, you're always basically looking to create equity everywhere, socially, politically, environmentally. You know, it's a broad sweep because if there's one thing wrong in the system, you could pretty much expect that there are a lot of things wrong in the system. Health care equity, for instance, which is so important these days we're seeing. Yeah, I just want to say one other funny little uh irony here before you uh, give a, an answer here, and that is I'm, I'm kind of giggling to myself because you and I had a, a fun conversation about our affection for Bernie Sanders, and I'm looking at what's going on now in a so-called Republican, I think it's got its own, you know, cult, actually, name that they call Republican, it's not even Republican, but... Uh, you know, what's going on in this administration, I'll just say, um, actually resembles very much what's been going on in the Democratic debates over the past year. You know, we're making a $1,200 payment to everybody, all Americans. Wow, that sounds a lot like Andrew Yang, doesn't it? Um, Health care, <laughs> meaning, you know, COVID testing and treatment for everybody. My, it sounds a little bit like Bernie Sanders' single pair, you know. And, so, and my view on this is that 
nature will balance any excess or deficiency over time. And we humans can accelerate that process, thankfully. But do you know what I mean? It's, you're, you've got an interesting yeah. backdrop into which you're beginning to run for office. So here, I want to hear what you have to say now. But I thought you'd appreciate yeah, yeah, I mean, that irony. Yeah, I mean, it it's, has always been a nightmare for a lot of us on the left that um, – you know, Trump would eventually become more of a populist and co-op a lot of the left's positions. And um, that that's, tends to be the historic norm for strongman type authoritarians. They, they mm-hmm. do social programming. And um, just the fact that the Republican Party is his death cult and sort of greedy and Trump is lazy and incompetent has sort of uh, kept that off of the, the political landscape. But yeah, COVID-19 mm-hmm. is really, uh, you know, You've got uh, some Republican senators talking about income that uh, Democratic leaders are still reluctant to, to do. So there's a real risk that uh, mm-hmm. they're flanked from the left on this. But yeah, isn't I mean, it you know, interesting? Going, going right? Back to your yeah. question. Yeah, going yes. back to your question about running for federal office. I mean, I, I am certainly very happy to be known as the housing guy. Um, I don't think there are enough people talking about housing uh, in general or specifically at the federal level. So even if it is. Mm-hmm just one thing that voters know me for, I think that's really important, um, both just on a national standpoint, but certainly in New York 12. Uh, you know, one of the interesting stats about New York 12, it is kind of seen as this wealthier um, district. It's got the Upper East Side, a lot of billionaires. The president up until recently was a constituent, but it's 72% home renters, and that's red-stabilized folks, that's folks in NYCHA and public housing, um, you know, middle-income, low-income renters. Could you um, so, outline what the what the geography is, the boundaries of the 12th district for our listeners? Yeah, sure. So it, it's a strange one, uh, and it's strange because it spans three different boroughs. So it's just about all the east side of Manhattan, from 96th Street, Park to River, down all through Midtown to the Lower East Side. And then it's the north part of Brooklyn, all of uh, Greenpoint and Williamsburg and Bushwick. Uh, and then it's the western part of Queens, all Long Island City and Astoria. So it's a very strange, Interesting. you know, just gerrymandering is not just a Republican tool. This is very just much, what I was about uh, to say. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like a gerrymandered <laughs> district to my ears. Yeah, yeah. It's a. Uh, it was very much designed for the current representative, Carolyn Maloney, who's been in office. Um, in 92, since 92, it, the districts have changed around a bit. But, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, again, it, 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 it ostensibly looks years. like it's a wealthy wow. district. Yeah, it's a long time. And it ostensibly yeah. looks like it's a wealthy district. And people have said, how can a democratic socialist have traction there? And you can point to the fact that the housing crisis, the affordability housing crisis, touches everybody. And for us, yes. you know, we live in Stuyvesant Town, and that's, you know, relatively middle, middle income. It's sort of gentrifying Mm -hmm. up generationally Um, but even Mm -hmm. folks that maybe have dual incomes that are lawyers or work in finance that have pretty good pay are still struggling because the rent's high they have debt they have child care costs so Mm -hmm. um, you know so much of my specific message um, is focused on housing because it is a lens to talk about economic inequality and racial inequality and climate disaster and to go up and down the income stream because um, it's not just young people. It's not just folks in NYCHA. It's not just folks that are um, immigrants that are struggling in a housing crisis. 
it's it's everybody, even homeowners. And, and even though it's majority home renter in this district, um, whether it's small homeowners in Long Island City or Greenpoint, whatever door I'm knocking on in this district, or I used to before COVID, um, has some problem related to housing. So uh, I'm, I'm very happy to be known as the housing candidate because there isn't a champion at the federal level for housing. Um, but it is such a great way to start a conversation with people, particularly folks that are maybe more middle of the road, maybe center right, center left, skeptical of some of these big platform ideas that we have on the left. And housing is, is just a very direct, um, universal component that everyone's a little bit worried about cost-wise. So it's a great way to get the ball rolling on some of these other policy objectives. And I also think, you know, the other thing that I want to be known as is being an urbanist. Um, I'm an unapologetic urbanist, and I think mm-hmm. cities are where the future of our country and planet are going to be one of the eco-friendly, great. actually, in Absolutely. so many respects. I mean, the carbon footprint yeah, yeah. is so lower. Uh, the consumption yeah. of energy, the materials, it really, it is. Cities are the best thing humans have ever come up with, and they are the best weapon <laughs> we have against climate disaster. And and mm-hmm. I, you know, specifically now with COVID-19, as I'm sure you've been covering on your show. You know, Andrew Cuomo, everybody's been blaming the density of New York City on why there has been such an outbreak here. And I have written some op-eds and and done some interviews pushing back on this because I find it, first of all, just factually incorrect. Of course, you've got major dense cities, Singapore, Seoul, other cities even in China that locked down and tested aggressively early on that haven't seen outbreaks. So it's just not true that because density, therefore – outbreak. Um, but I, I think it does speak to one of the reasons why I'm running even before COVID came out is, you know, America has this really deep-rooted anti-urbanist culture. It's, it's of course, embedded in our political system from everywhere, mm-hmm. from the electoral college um, to the fact that, you know, states have authority and cities do not in the Constitution. So there's this big, mm-hmm. big problem in our political system where, you know, depending on how you sort of define urban environments, about 80% of Americans live in them, which is increasing. But yet, proportionally, you know, you've got folks in Wyoming that have more power than voters in New York or California. No, no knock on folks in Wyoming, but that's just not representative. Um, that's not democratic. Yeah. And it's a huge, huge problem for the issues that we're facing. So even before COVID, I was running aggressively on why cities should be the center of federal policy, why they've been neglected for so long because of these reasons. And I find it slightly dangerous or irresponsible of people talking about COVID-19 as because New York broke out, there's some problem with cities. And that, that should be the opposite lesson that we're drawing from this. Um, and, and certainly that's a big part of how the you, pivot for our I mean, campaign. let's be... Let's be straight. I mean, among rational people, how do you blame, and with all due respect to Cuomo, who is from Queens, of course, uh, how do you blame density? I mean, what is density? It's just a whole bunch of people want to live in a place. I mean, you can't blame density. All you can do is blame behavior, and blame is not a very elevated virtue anyway, but everyone taking responsibility for wherever it is they happen to be, that's a way more enlightened perspective. But I appreciate all that you're saying about sort of uh, 
inching up, elevating the idea of city living, urbanization, as you're saying. You know, many people say that it's really the mayors of cities that run the country, not even governors, even though governors are obviously very important, and certainly not the national politics. I mean, they get to throw a lot of money around, it's true. But, you know, many of us consider they cause more trouble than they do um, help people, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And they give the world, uh, they give us in the cities a strange name in the eyes of the entire world. (laughs) That's a whole other conversation. But I want to remind our listeners also that in light of what you're saying as wanting to be known, Pete, as the housing guy, do you remember, I'm sure you do, the fellow who has run for mayor, in fact, in New York several different uh, times, whose um, party was known as the rent is too damn high party. (laughs) I love that guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do you remember? So, of course you do. So, but and so, just to kind of go back to that point, um, important point in your platform, it's like the central piece. The fact is, you're right. It really does reach everyone. Everyone has to have a roof over their head, and from that one place, you see who gets a roof, who does not, in what area, what does it cost. Who gets the representation in court and who does not? Does that have to do with the color of our skin? Does that have to do our, with our economic level, et cetera, et cetera, documented, mm-hmm. undocumented? So it actually does become very much a funnel for every other issue that we face. But I want to go one other step because I, I really wholeheartedly agree with your premise. There's another premise, though, I've come up with over the course of time being a tenant in New York that is um, landlords, where we really uh, situate the problem and their psychological headset of usually greed, of self-interest first, and everyone else can, you know, go eat cake or so. There is another issue that I'd love to hear you address, which is, Property taxes. So I always said that while I want landlords to be fair and equitably minded, no pun intended, I also would like to see state and city governments be equally so. I.e., if the taxes aren't too, if they are not onerous, that allows the landlord to be fairer with his or her tenants. And there is a chicken and egg thing here, of course. But I think that if we started first with city government, and then we move to landlords and demand fairness from both, then we can have a more comfortable, leisurely life with a roof over our head where we don't have to be spending three of four weeks of our earnings simply on rent. Your comments. Your thoughts. Yeah, I I I agree that um, you know, and, and and it's funny because it's and I, I I tease about this. I mean, I you know, I'm I'm very much a policy wonk. I was a senior housing advisor for Data for Progress, which is a progressive think tank, and um, uh-huh. wrote a, a very large report, many reports on housing policy and and you know, property tax and real estate taxes uh-huh. are not the sexiest. Uh, rallying cry hashtag on the left, but they're incredibly important <laughs> policies. 
true. Uh, and there's a lot of there's a lot that needs to be done on them. And and this to me again, I, you know, it's interesting because I, this is where I kind of even though I'm very much on the left, uh, I don't think the issue breaks down quite as simply as left right. And I do think no, um, I'm so glad you're you know saying. talking about homeowners and property tax is a good example of this because um, you know we have a very strange property tax structure frankly everywhere in the country and specifically in New York and mm-hmm. it's mostly a state issue mm-hmm. rather than a city issue and you know the problem is it does get back to the core of values and is a house a, like an asset where you can build wealth from or is it a place where you have security where you and live. structure and access to community yeah. and you know America we've always sort of kind of blurred that line and we do not have a strong yes. social safety net so people have their retirement and their equity in their houses. And that has created, you know, special interests that lobby for these tax loopholes and um, the sort of fact that our school systems are based on property taxes and the inequities Mm -hmm. of that process and land use policy and zoning policy also um, playing into property taxes and, and racial and economic inequality. So, you know, these are, really complicated uh, sort of wonky things on the surface, but they do get to pretty simple values. And I do think, um, you know, I've written extensively about New York City property taxes, and I, I don't think, I, I think, you know, the, the idea of a landlord and even the word landlord is sort of a very bizarre, futile artifact. And Truly, it it's a real antiquated word, isn't it? Yeah. I think it, it probably sort of goes a, back to medieval times, you know. With oh, absolutely. I mean, it's right. You know, it's a kind of it, it. It sort of does show the the very weird, I think, antiquated world of of landlord uh, and and tenant relationship. And I, I don't think yeah. you really do need landlords in this sense. But you know, we can't get there overnight. But what we can do certainly is there is a big difference in New York, unfortunately, between the property quote unquote property tax for like one of these super tall skyscrapers on 57th street, those condos are taxed at a lower rate than a row house in Long Island city. Um, And and that's just absurd on the face of it. And that um, is again, the sort of a patchwork of policies and fiefdoms at the city and state level. And this Mm -hmm. legislative session gets to that. And this one doesn't. And all of a sudden, like over the course of 20 years, you have all these bizarre um, laws and regulations and and percentages and caps and everything that just doesn't make any sense. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's never, and unfortunately this gets back to the left's criticism of the Democratic Party and specifically in New York, Andrew Cuomo, you know, he is getting all this lion's share of press because of COVID. But anybody that's been paying attention to state politics, particularly the housing movement, like does not trust, does not respect, has zero faith in the governor particularly because he goes on the side of landlords and like, you know, always being afraid of the sort of suburbanite homeowner versus the, the home renter in cities. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that, again, to me, like that's why I, as a housing activist over the last 10 years, even the victories we've gotten um, at the city level and at the state level, particularly in 2018, 2019, um, you know, there's just a ceiling that you can't get past this massive difference between homeowners and home renters and property taxes and rent and, 
you have to get above that because the incentives yes. to own property really do come at the federal level. They're taxed as, as at, at sort of passive income. They're taxed in capital gains. Um, you know, there's all this structure at the federal level about making real estate this really privileged asset. And that's why after energy companies, the real estate industry is the biggest lobbyist on Congress, and most people don't realize mm-hmm. that. Um, mm-hmm, and you know, right. it's one of the one of the the pillars of my campaign. You know, I've got these sort of three things I tell myself when I'm crying to myself at three o'clock in the morning. It's you know, <laughs> one is to tell people that housing is a human right. Two is to talk about the plan that I helped write, the Homes Guarantee, and how to how to sort of decommodify housing and how to make it a right and build more social equity and more housing. And then the third thing is mm-hmm. in the political sphere to show how toxic real estate money is in our political discourse and how much it should be vilified as much as fossil fuel, as much as big tobacco and big pharma. Um, real estate <laughs> money, of course, runs New York City. It runs New York State, uh, and it feeds itself um, at the national level. And the best example we have is you know, our landlord uh, in Stytown is Blackstone. They're one of the biggest private equity firms, the biggest private equity firm in the world. Uh, they are the biggest private landlord in the world, and the United Nations has literally called them out for their role um, in fueling the ha- global housing crisis. So, you know, when people say, hey, Pete, you're a housing activist. Why don't you run for city council or state? Like, housing's a local issue. I tell them my landlord is the biggest landlord in the world, and this is not a local <laughs> issue. And why are they landlords? Because it's pretty good yeah. deal. Like, you've got an immense amount of incentives in real estate law and property tax law and subsidies uh, to do that. So, you know, until you can really tackle it at that level, you're not going to solve the housing crisis. You're not going to meaningfully protect people, whether they are, you know, low-income homeowners or renters. Um, So, yeah, I I get very excited talking about real estate law and and taxes because it's so – it's always, like, the details, right? Like, the banality of capitalism is – things like property the devil tax in the law, details, and real estate tax say. law. Right, right. Absolutely. Even just this $2 trillion relief fund and who's actually going to be getting the money and what are the restrictions on it and now the oversight, uh, you know, uh, Inspector General has been fired. I mean, the whole thing is um, I have a different you know, perspective on things because my background is in uh, psychology. So I, I tend to look at things through a psychological and sociological lens about why issues are the way they are. Um, and, you know, I don't want to take our time with that to any appreciable extent. But I would like to ask you, and I appreciate everything that you've been saying here. If you were to be elected, if people listening here were to vote for you, what would they then be able to expect in terms of changes and their own safety net regarding their own homes, housing in this district to start with? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the first thing I always say when asked this question is to remind people that I am a completely sane, uh, reasonable <laughs> pragmatic person and I would be one of 435 uh, folks in Congress and the most Mm -hmm. senior one at that. So, you know, there's not, 
uh, the revolution isn't coming overnight. It's not coming because I get elected, and it's not um, it's not going to happen in a because I'm there. Like I, it, I'm very much part of a larger movement, larger critique of our political sure. establishment, and getting more of us in there to talk about these issues, to reframe the premises that we operate on politically. That that I can start day one, and, and obviously I think I'm already doing that in this campaign and, and challenging the incumbent representative Maloney. Like, just changing the expectations for what we should expect at the federal level is progress. Introducing new ideas and talking about housing as a right, talking about how public housing is one of the best programs we've ever had. It's just been um, defunded because of racial, you know, racial policies and talking about mm-hmm. home renters. And, and I use that term very specifically because even just elevating a renter from being a renter to being a home renter, I think has rhetorical power because we oh, elevate like homeowners that. in this country. Yeah. Yeah. We That's elevate a very good phrase. I wasn't aware of that. I, I like that. That yeah. has a real ring to it. And I, yeah, I think, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm a as film a real writer, so I, wait. Yeah, I think about yeah. language very specifically and Good. the terminology that we use on the left. You know, it's lessons we learn from the right. I mean, you know, the right is really good about framing issues and, like, um, you know, whether it's like the estate tax, all of a sudden it becomes a death tax. Well, everybody dies and nobody wants to get taxed when they die. You know, it's like a, right. an absurd thing that the right is really good about crystallizing something. So I think even just us calling renters home renters elevates the fact that I have a home, you have a home, even though we live in Stuyvesant Town and we're renting it. We do have rights. We do have uh, an equal say in our society. So the fact that New York 12 is 72% home renters, um, just having somebody in Congress that is a home renter um, is a pretty radical change. Nobody is currently a home renter in Congress. Um, you know, Representative Maloney is you mean by, board, by so. law, by law, using that language. No, not by law, just right. by, by reality. I mean, I, I you, know, you know, she's AOC. She's technically a home renter. I mean, she, you know, like inherited her, her mom's co-op in Parkchester in the Bronx. But, um, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're all homeowners. They all own, they're all millionaires. I mean, obviously, AOC is not. A bunch of folks are yeah. not. Oh, I see um, what you mean. But, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they – They've really enriched themselves using the political process. Let's not go to yeah, the uh, so, I mean, occupant know, of the Oval Office in... right now. <laughs> but <laughs> emoluments yeah, doesn't and, and exist, apparently. <laughs> the Constitution barely exists these days. You know? yeah. But, you know, I want to bring another point up, uh, which uh, actually a couple of them. One is uh, because I am an impassioned environmentalist and a lot of the shows that we do here are on the environment and greening America and greening the planet and uh, renewable energy and moving off of fossil fuel. In fact, I've had uh, not AOC, but I've had uh, Robert Hockett, who's one of her chief advisors on the Green New Deal on the show a couple of times. And uh, so that, that for a better world is one of our large focuses. And mm-hmm. I just want to kind of drop this into the bucket, Pete, which is that if the New York uh, landlords, uh, for lack of a better term at the moment, but we'll, we'll invent one, uh, if, the, of the, if the building owners, et cetera, were to really take this seriously, energy efficiency, green roofs, solar, wind, waste to energy, 
proper, you know, energy efficient waste disposal, on and on and on, uh, you know, green buildings, et cetera, et cetera, using the proper materials, um, their carbon footprint would be dropped dramatically. Their cost would be dropped dramatically. That would increase their profit margin elsewhere, and they wouldn't need to be getting it from us to the same level. So that's just another example of this notion that you put forward of housing being a funnel for virtually everything else. And, you know, that's a, that's a case in point. Uh, first comments before I bring up another subject. Yeah, I mean, you know, the carbon footprint of the built environment of housing or commercial properties is significant in this country. And um, the transportation footprint is, I think, 38% of our carbon footprint. So there is no meaningful way to Buildings mitigate. actually uh, even being more. Buildings are yeah. hotbeds of pollution that we don't really think about it that way. But the fact is, you know, on the ground, no pun intended, it is. They are. Yep, yeah, and, and, you know, there's a lot of – there's a lot of design um, innovations, passive housing, um, other types oh, of materials yeah. that can can work on that. And um, I think the like getting back to my point about being an urbanist, tall buildings are and and public transportation are really good ways to get people to reduce their individual carbon footprints by living in cities, yes. walkable. Um, and that's why you know I've got a free public transportation plan, but. Part of the Green New Deal for cities that I'm running on, and you know, I helped work on the Green New Deal for public housing with Data for Progress, and you know, some other sort of yes. tangential works on that. Um, yeah, you, you've got to get the, the the energy efficiency up in buildings, and um, it's unfair to ask, particularly smaller landlords, to sort of bear that burden because inevitably that means the tenants are going to bear that burden. So that does have to be a priority from the federal government. Um, to incentivize retrofitting, to incentivize new green construction. Tax um, incentives, yep. absolutely. Like we had for the longest time, in fact, we still do have some, although some are sunsetting, uh, tax credits for solar installations. Yeah, and then, you know, th those are good starts. I think you've got to do that at scale. And, you know, one of the things I outline in our Homes uh, for All report that I've done for the Homes Guarantee is going, going back to your point about real estate tax and you know, there, there's a basically way that um, landlords can write off their uh, costs when they replace windows or oh, um, no. they can, yeah, depreciation, which, of course, you know, you buy a car, you buy a computer, you can write, you can depreciate that over time because the asset gets older. But it's weird because with housing or property ownership, of course, the value of the land goes up. So you're actually reducing your tax liability in depreciation, but the value of the equity is going up, which doesn't make any sense to me. So, you know, one of my proposals is to change that so you can only write off depreciation by investments in green um, technology, sustainability, oh, efficiency. Like you, you can't yeah. just write off because you buy a property and you paint the outside or you um, point the bricks or something. You know, all these tools that landlords right. use to jack up. Or, or lay down marble in the uh... – in the bedroom or the bathrooms. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, so changing again Very the tax code to, to create this type of incentive, uh, because I do think there's got to be a carrot and a stick, and I, I do think there's an immense amount of 
invent intervention the public sector has to have in housing, but partners in the private sector, and you've got to be practical. I would much rather have um, nonprofits and landlords and um, you know even the old school like algamated unit unions in housing rather than Blackstone. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But you know the cost of housing is is so high, and some of that's property taxes and incentives of cost. So you know it, it takes a much bigger intervention at the federal level and a commitment, a whole government commitment to saying climate crisis is our biggest challenge and there are some pretty low-hanging fruit here for us to reduce our carbon emissions, but we have to incentivize that and we have to to, to, to fund that directly. So yeah, I you know, know. that's a major, major focus is doing <laughs> Survival isn't enough incentive. <laughs> And it's not. It is crazy. Yeah. You know, I mean, and I and I've been saying yeah. this on, on some other uh, you know, on Twitter and some other places about how COVID nineteen really is such a dress rehearsal for climate disaster, and the fact yeah, that our is. government at the city, at the state, at the federal level have been all so slow and so bureaucratic and incompetent. in many cases petty and incompetent. Um, you know, it's we've kind of let the public fear rot and it's very much the right and the billionaire class ideologically wanting that to happen um, and, and frankly the Democratic Party being sort of greedy in its own way not standing in the yes. way of that so here we are with the results of that so you look at COVID-19 which is a pandemic it's horrific we've already got over 10,000 fatalities in America probably likely more than that um, and, and it's still a relatively it's not like a movie, Hollywood movie bad type influenza, but we were so caught off guard and we had 70 days to get ready for this. And, and it's President so Trump's administration gets a lot of that blame, but yeah, yeah. everybody everybody's screwed up here. So if Why we can't get this something should, like this right... There should be, and there is, you know, national, federal preparedness, disaster preparedness. And there are uh, whole agencies and organizations inside government that live for preparation. Of course, this president knocked out the one on pandemics when he first got in uh, as one of his first acts, I believe it was. You know, yeah. um, but basically, when to hear a grown man in the position of president say, we didn't know this was going to happen. I mean, what a, a fool wouldn't even say that. Because as president running a nation, you have to be prepared for everything. You, are, you live on the level of expecting the unexpected. That's your job, not thinking about yep. when you're going to play golf next. But that is what we're dealing with here, Pete, as you well know. And so, you know, there are members, thankfully, in government that are usually in unelected positions who are sort of a permanent fixtures who are very prepared for what might be next. And, you know... Look at Y2K, look at 9-11, look at Katrina, look at Hugo, look at uh, Maria, look at um, Sandy. How many dress rehearsals do we need? But it keeps happening. And I mean, I personally go back again to uh, mind, to psychology, to readiness to our relationship, actually, it's going to sound funny, with, with death itself, with life and with death. And, you know, we talk about valuing every life, but there's not 
a huge amount of evidence of that, you know, distinguishing us from others. You know, I, I don't get it. I think it's just a, it's just a, a self-satisfying story that we tell ourselves. But, you know, I want to bring something else up, actually. First, a very practical thing, local, and then something international, because you're running for a national office, which has international implications, because you mm-hmm. would be voting on things far beyond city housing in the 12th district. You will be voting on things of the relationship of Israel and the Palestinians. You'll be voting on, you know, sanctions of different countries to keep them or remove them, on, you know, foreign policy issues, you name it. There is a lot that you would be called to do far beyond this. But let's talk, and we have a national, an international audience, so I, I kind of want to uh, feed them if they don't know anything about yeah, the 12th sure, district in New York City. But first of all, let's just stay local for a moment. And you uh, kind of tickled me when you were talking about depreciation of various things and swinging that over to depreciation of energy-efficient, eco-friendly types of measures, which, uh, you know, capital improvements, which I think is fantastic. It's a great idea. MCI, talk about antiquated holdovers. So there's this idea, folks, if you don't know it, that if your landlord, uh, we're going to be using a little ancient language for the moment, please forgive us, uh, (laughs) you know, you know, makes what's considered a capital improvement, puts on a new roof, a new heating system, what have you, some, you know, significant um, uh, expense. He or she gets to write that off and pass on that cost um, prorated across the the buildings or building complex or community, what have you. And so we forever, even after they have paid themselves back many times over, are still paying this ridiculous cost for the length of our lives as it's set up right now. Is that one of the items that I hope that you want to challenge? Yeah, I mean, at at the um, local level, I've been part of the Housing Justice for All Coalition uh, in the state, which is you know a, a very successful statewide coalition of housing groups uh, from rent stabilized to market to uh, manufactured home to public housing to homelessness. Um, It's part of what our platform success last year with universal rent control was um, trying to eliminate things like MCIs and all these little, you know, weird little nooks and crannies and even rent stabilized apartments that do give incentives for landlords to raise rents. And, you know, just like anything, the idea behind it is, has a sort of rational um, practicality to it. And, you know, your landlords do need to replace the boilers or fix the ceilings. And y- you make that argument, that's that's fine. And then you've got to have that cost. But, you know, the way it works out in reality is it's just a weapon to, to previously to raise rents to get to this point where there's, the rents get to a certain level where they get out of the rent stabilization market and they get back to the market. Um, you know, right. so some of those, a lot of those things were removed last year in our universal rent control platform, and very proud to have been a part of that organizing. I got arrested yes. up by Andrew Cuomo's office over the summer, um, and oh you know, it's still whack a mole because there's always uh, the problem of enforcement of the agencies behind it. Talking about government services and public services going to rot, that happens at the state and city level as well, and. 
um, you know, even if there's a legitimate thing that, oh, well, you know, landlord, I'm replacing the boiler, even if you accept the logic that that should get passed down to the tenant, which really shouldn't be the case anyway, because, again, the tenant's not taking the equity. Uh, they're getting charged in a compounded sense. But even if you believe that, um, the mm-hmm. system still doesn't work because it's abused, it's not reviewed, it's not enforced. Um, and, again, I, you know, I do think that is ultimately at, at, at the local level, at the state level, but where I do think the federal government and the Homes Guarantee Plan specifically can do this is to get to this larger point of reshaping the, the relationship between, you know, the landlord and the tenant. And we have, so, we're so used to this as tenants where um, <clears throat> I don't know how much the landlord is really paying property tax wise or what their debt is, how much profit they're making, uh, mm-hmm. But they know everything about me. They know my income. Oh, they know so you're my... calling for transparency additional to everything else. I think as a basic tenant of of capitalism and the classic, and I'm a college professor, and the basic element of 101 capitalism is perfect competition, perfect information, and you know rational actors pursuing their ends. And of course, that's not true mm-hmm. anywhere in the housing no. market, and I don't have uh, access to the same information as the landlord does. So just starting out there again on on the tax side of it, I think if yes. a landlord wants to know my rent history, my credit history, my income level, sure as hell I should know that because if they are making an arm and a leg on profit, then there's no justifiable reason that they can't put some of that profit into an MCI or into replacing services or anything like that outside of this basic mm-hmm. public safety. So, Absolutely. you know, there, there, there are ways at the federal level through tax code to just change that dynamic. Um, and obviously the other side of it is the federal government can build more housing. Um, yes. There's no cheaper way to do that than direct public housing because the government can borrow money cheaply and public housing should be a viable alternative for people and there should be pressure on the private market there should always be a public option for housing. So um, I think those two things are really where I would focus as opposed to trying to get into the minutia at every municipal level or every state level about their you know, zonings and occupancy laws. Um, it's more about empowering home renters and changing the incentives on the landlord side um, and putting actual market pressure on landlords that they can't just sit on their laurels because – we're not building enough housing in New York or, you know, people don't want to live in Youngstown, Ohio. They want to move to New York. So, you know, there, there are things mm-hmm. outside of, you know, I, I'm a Henry George fan. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. The oh, Land I Valley do. Town. Yes, indeed. Me too. And, you know, that, yeah. that's, that's in our that's property. Great. That's great. I'm glad to hear that. Report as well. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's the idea, again, of like rewarding investment, rewarding um, good and in, in, in sort of value creation as opposed to just, and, reco- and recognition of the commons and the importance of the commons. Exactly. So and I think re- that's really you know, where and the federal... Yes. Go ahead. <clears throat> no, finish your uh, thought. But yeah, I think that's where the federal government, where my focus on housing would, would come into it, um, like both that. at this sort of macro level, building more housing, and at the sort of tax level of, of changing those incentives. And at the end of the day, like, there, should, there are people that are in that, the landlord game because they want to reduce their costs do as little as possible and sit on a property that's gentrifying neighborhood and flip it and, you know, to get out the 
rent stabilize low income immigrant family and get a bunch of tech bros in there and raise the rents and um you know that that's that's a bad yeah. actor that's somebody that's i'm gonna i'm gonna have to come around to uh my psychological analysis i was gonna hold back on it but what you said just uh just tweaked me in a way that it comes down to this there's this you know one of the nice things what i hear you saying and i want to really bring this to people's attention is the questioning of of long-held assumptions one of course is the mci one is the use of the word landlord, what is that relationship anyway, isn't that antiquated, how can we upgrade it, uh, you know, how can we, in a sense, have a more eco-friendly type of urban environment, um, and is there a way to upgrade the relationship in a way that it's, let's just say, uh, uh, more friendly instead of, as it so often is, adversarial. But at base Pete. Uh, there is this thing in our culture that I believe is truly pathological from a true psychological point of view that is an assumed right for people. And that is one simple phrase, more is better. More money, more houses, more flips, more, you know, squeeze here in order to make more money there, blah, 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 right? So there's this motif that is underlying every action of so many people in this world. And I've been arguing for, even though I do very much appreciate your interest in Henry George, and I read him years ago, uh, that there's this notion of moderate profit. Not making a killing. You don't want to make a killing because people get killed. You want a moderate profit if you're inside the capitalist system, which we clearly are. We're also inside a socialist system. We clearly are. And there's no such thing as purity of either. And probably it's good that there's no purity of either. One offsets the other. But ultimately, it's our mind and the health or lack of health of our mind and spirit that will generate one behavior or another, i.e. then one law, legislation, or policy or another. And if people were a little bit more laid back, if people were a little bit more centered and balanced in their own mind, they wouldn't need to make that extra 500 or a or $2,000 per month per apartment. They would say, you know what? I don't, that's not going to change my life as owner at all. It's just numbers on a spreadsheet. It's just a bunch of more zeros. And there have been people who have come forward, millionaires, who have said this publicly on national television saying, we don't need to make all this money. We can pay more in taxes. It's fine with us because our lifestyle isn't going to change one whit. Well, I think that we need to make that more of a consensus across society, that attitude where moderate profit could really be the ruling idea of the day. And that in itself can help to shift policy and at least behavior between an owner of a building, say, and the tenants. 
So I just wanted to bring that forward. I, I see that if people shifted their own sense of desperation, of their own fear of not having enough, uh, then we would really have a different world, you know. And, uh, you know, the Native American and indigenous people across the world really do promote this idea that nature is abundant in herself. And if we could kind of get that message, we could stop putting the squeeze on each other. <laughs> Your thoughts? Yeah, I, mean, I, I agree. I mean, I, I've talked about this with with classes that I've taught um, at, at Brew College. And, you know, uh-huh. it's, it's this weird tension in, in our, you know, late capitalist society of, you know, the, the difference between being a consumer and being a citizen. And, and I don't mean citizen yeah. in like documented sense because um, that, that's a stupid system and deeply inequitable, but a citizen of your community and of the world uh, versus a consumer. And obviously we have very true, very much sh- shifted our entire culture to consumption. And yes, I still remember vividly in the summer of 2004, uh, this was, you know, leading up to the reelection for George W. Bush against Kerry. And there was a threat around July 4th uh, you know, this, whatever that terrorist threat level was raised, and there was you know, the orange or red. Yeah. yeah, and I remember <laughs> Condi Rice got on the TV there and said, uh, you know, uh, we're being uh, monitoring everything and just be vigilant and you know, go out and do your duty. Go go to Walmart and and spend money and and, and yes, oh, stores. I remember that. Yes. And I, you know, be a good American. Like, no, go out and spend money. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and that's basically been the answer ever since. And, and it, like to yes. me, it just shows how morally broken and bankrupt our really system true. is. That the answer is just go out and buy shit. And and that's to me, right. it, that that really a dissolution to me about not just you know Republicans and and whatever, but also Democrats and just capitalism in general to say, you know, that, and that's why some of the COVID stuff has been so wrong because. Again, there, even the fact that, again, as a writer here, like we keep using the word stimulus in these packages. These are not stimulus packages. These are emergency relief packages. You don't want people yes, to go out and spend indeed. money. You want them to stay at home. And the fact indeed. that we don't have the language for that is, shows that we don't have the mindset for that. And that's we don't right. know what to do other than to say, go spend money and buy shit. And, and that's just such a broken <laughs> world because it, it it, there's nothing there. And, and it, it's hard – and that's very much True why enough. I identify as a democratic socialist because it's not just broad ideological strokes of socialism or, or, or capitalism. It's, it is to this point, it is to say that there is a different way to organize our society and it's not just yes. around consumption and it's not around the sort of very like vapid metric of uh, GDP, stock market, whatever these things are that we measure the health of our, our society around. And that's obviously on its own logic failing you've got such a massive amount of poverty and insecurity in this country um and you're seeing it now because of covid um you're seeing the discrepancy of folks not being able to pay their rent the disproportionate amount of black americans dying from covid you know the, yep. covid isn't creating any of these problems donald trump is not creating any of these problems they're both revealing these problems revealing, and that is fundamentally exactly. because of this fact that we do have a consumption-based society and it's just not, yeah, it's not good for our souls. And, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a utopian. I'm not uh, hippy-dippy. Like, we, we need stuff. we got to go out and, like, drinking coffee and, you know, and making cocktails and whatever. Like, I get it. You need a consumption. You need to consume things. But to build a society around that, 
has obviously failed. And, and I think we have failed to appreciate that, whether it was 9-11 and the sort of self-evaluation we should have done about our role globally and, and the sort of empire we have. And we didn't learn that during the Great Recession when we bailed out the banks and bailed out all these bad actors and created austerity or, you know, support austerity for everyone else. Um, we, we just haven't learned the deeper problem here. And it is about what makes us happy. You know, community makes us happy. Purpose makes exactly. us happy. Fulfillment exactly. makes us happy. And Where do we find None of us meaning? have that opportunity. Yeah. Where do we find culture? Where do we find creativity? Uh, it's so true. I mean, the whole idea of human potential is just lost. It's, it's like we live in this, uh, like this, vapid spiritual wasteland if you are identified as a consumer uh you know we're even the irs looks at us as a customer i mean what is this about alfie you know everything has gone upside down so no i i I very much appreciate appreciate your points both practical and sort of the larger the larger picture i just got an idea because i think that the democratic socialist label has been damaging to bernie uh, i think i said that to you when we first met um and it's not because <laughs> yeah. i don't think well of the idea it has nothing to do with it because i'm wholly on board with it myself except that it's not respecting the lack of education of the American. And he or she just does not grok reality that we are both uh, capitalist and socialist and always have been from the get-go. And that's sort of just the way it is. But I just came up with a funny idea because this Trump and all of his followers seem to love, he loves if uh, he said publicly that why don't we get more immigrants from Norway? Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you remember that. He he was yeah, no, this I is do. when he said some uh, just dastardly things about some other countries um and the color of the people and I, I don't even want to go near it. But he said why don't we get more immigrants wanting to come here from Norway? Because they're damn happy in their democratic socialist system, bub. <laughs> I was wondering, Bernie maybe should have called himself a Norwegian democratic socialist. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, bad I mean, joke. I, I, I do <laughs> think, you know, and, and obviously with, um, you know, Senator Sanders um, suspending a campaign today, you know, that this is a hard day for, for a lot of us. And truly, you know, I, I think very the, upsetting. you know, post post Bernie movement, um, you know, that, that kind of starts today. And I think he has done an immense amount of good for inspiring people like me to, to get involved in electoral politics. And we mm-hmm. are a country of laws and we need good lawmakers to make good laws and, and then to enforce good laws. And, um, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that the campaign, you know, was hemmed in by a, a very compliant corporate media and in some of its own strategic limitations and how to, how to like walk that very fine line of a right criticism of the political establishment and the democratic party, but not alienate democratic voters who are not necessarily as yeah. touched by these issues and this economic insecurity. Really and 
uh, it is very difficult, and, and obviously it wasn't it wasn't possible in, in one or two cycles. Uh, I think the ideas are right, and they're winning. And COVID, um, and the sort of cruelest irony of all of this, uh, just as COVID makes Bernie's argument universal, and everyone sees the value of healthcare as a right, and and uh, the needs of the broader structure of our economy to change. Um, you know, that, that unfortunately came uh, too late to really get into the elective cycle for, for Bernie at this point. But um, I, I don't know the future of the Democratic Socialist label and uh, member of the DSA, and <clears throat> I'm proud to associate as it, and I do think it's useful shorthand. I mean, it's still a big tent term, and, you know, there's a very generational divide about that term and, and going back to the Cold War America, and, you know, it's complicated. and. I think you just have to be authentic to yourself and um, believe what you believe and organize with the people that you are like-minded around. And I think what's unique about me in New York 12, just I guess to wrap it all up here, is um, you know I, I do think because New York 12 is a, a sort of a different bracket and a different level of, um, of the base to build for us on the left um, – it's really important for me as a democratic socialist to run and to win in a place like New York 12. And I, I use the term a lot. Um, you know, if you only make money when you're awake, you're working class and you could be making a lot of money. But again, if you've got debt, if you've got high rent, childcare costs, you're not doing great. And there are a lot of folks that I think um, just anecdotally from us knocking on doors and, and doing outreach and it's all got to be digital now. Um, but you know, that message breaks through, and I don't know if it's going to be one cycle, and it's not just one candidate, but it's a message that is universal. It's just true, and and that to me yeah. has been sort of the North Star for all of us in the movement, and, you know, maybe the terms will change. I, I don't know, and, and I'm, you know, that's above my pay grade, um, but the <laughs> ideas are universal, and, and that, that yeah. to me is what's important, and, true. but finding out how to, how to get into a Democratic voter who just thinks Donald Trump is the problem and get him out will fix things. Um, you know, that, that's a lot of work and that's a lot of political education and that's a lot of outreach, but it does take multiple candidates at multiple levels with multiple messages uh, getting out there and just, you know, hitting the bricks and hitting the message. And, and I'm, I'm a very small part of that, but that's just what we have to do. Like, you know, we're running out of time yeah. here and, and COVID is again, a dress rehearsal for the bigger challenges ahead. Very true, very true. Well, I really appreciate that you are willing to make the effort to run. It takes a lot of, as we call it in New York, chutzpah and courage <laughs> and uh, all sorts of other things. And uh, I really wish you luck. I, there was one matter which we can pro- probably address another time, which is the uh, the international uh, level of someone who is in the House of Representatives which means that you will be uh, in a position to vote for any number of different things happening nationally and internationally because that's the role America plays. And uh, so I just leave you with a thought that uh, keep that in mind, my friend, as you move along. I'll come, yeah, I'll come on back on the show. We'll talk all international. Exactly. Sounds great. Well, why don't you give your website ways people can uh, learn more about you? Yeah, appreciate it. Uh, the website is www.peterfornewyork.com. That's all spelled out. 
you can get me on Twitter at uh, Pete Harrison NYC. Um, I can't remember. Well, Facebook, it's uh, Peter for New York. And uh, that's, uh, yeah, the best way to contact me uh, is, is probably on Twitter. Or uh, hopefully we'll be, if you live in New York 12, hopefully we'll be getting a phone call from one of our volunteers or from me over the next uh, yes. couple of months. That sounds great. Well, I wish you a lot of luck in your running. I think it's great. I love the idea of new blood. Nothing, uh, Carolyn Maloney has done a very decent job. I think, generally speaking, quite well of her over the course of years. But I think that it's also time for new blood, new ideas, new energy, new ambition to uh, get in there and uh, kind of a higher level of values that are really being uh, executed. So, Pete Harrison, thanks so much for being a guest on the show today and uh, sharing your thoughts and uh, beliefs with our uh, with our audience. Yeah, appreciate it. Uh, stay safe and be well. Thanks. Take care now. Pete Harrison running for Congress in the 12th District of New York City. And uh, for all of you who are living in uh, Japan and the Philippines and India and France and Mexico and uh, UK and Canada. Uh, this was a local show, but you know New York is a place that people love, and you got a chance to uh, take a look into some of its operational mechanics and some of the issues that we're dealing with, which, by the way, I am sure are not altogether different from the issues that you are all dealing with. really nice to have uh, a young man like Pete Harrison rising in the ranks and visibility and uh, willing to take on the challenge of running for a national office. Uh, it's a lot of work, and unfortunately it costs way too much money. Um, so I really want to wish him luck in his endeavors here. So I want to thank all of you for listening today. Remember that we are a 501c3, a nonprofit. We so appreciate your donations to keep us sustained on the air. And the best way to do that is simply write to me at my direct email address, which is mjr at abetterworld.net. That's my initials, mjr at abetterworld.net. And visit our website become part of a better world's community we have a free weekly newsletter that goes out um, and if you go to a betterworld.tv that's a betterworld.tv uh, you will be able to sign up for our newsletter we're also on tv in manhattan every monday evening at 7 p.m and that's where i also interview the song and the unsung heroes of society, people who are really making a difference uh, for the uh, fairness and social justice and environmental justice and health and healing of all people everywhere. So I so appreciate, again, your uh, tuning in. And also, one last thing, MitchellRabin.com, M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L-R-A-B-I-N.com is where you can learn more about uh, my coaching and energy balancing and stress management services. 
couples counseling and the like because as you heard from the show my background is in psychology counseling psychotherapy acupuncture and stress management so it'll be a pleasure to be able to be of service to you as well and you can reach me by phone at 212-420-0800 that's 212-420-0800 and thanks everybody for tuning in today pass this on to your friends and i look forward to seeing you all 